0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. This morning, let me invite you now to uh, open with me in the scriptures to the book of Genesis and also in the New Testament, the book of Romans. We're going to be reading both of these places this morning as we continue on in a part two of this question, uh, If God, Why Evil? Uh, Which I said last week was really uh, one of the most ultimate of the hard questions, and uh, several people gave me a list of suggestions, and this question was on everybody's list, to be sure, and I imagine if you were to make a list of hard questions that this question would be on it as well. So last week we began looking at, if God, why evil? Again, one of the most ultimate questions, and uh, really unfortunately, uh, we acknowledge uh, for many people, quite frankly, it's a dropping off point for the Christian faith in their life. Uh, They refuse to go further down the road of the Christian faith because they cannot reconcile the reality that if there is a God who is altogether good and wise and powerful, why does He not prevent evil from happening? They cannot reconcile the existence of God and the existence of evil with any reasonable conclusion, and so they instead come to the conclusion that God does not exist because they cannot reconcile these two things. Now, we spoke about that Uh, Last week, we spoke about that in the consideration of what we would say as non-starters in the answer to this question. And the first non-starter was that God doesn't exist and the Christian faith refuses to concede that. We do not grant that God does not exist because if you come to the conclusion that God does not exist, then you can't call anything good or evil because you have no point of ultimate moral absolute to make reference or judgment to say, this is good and this is bad, if there is no absolute. So no, we do not concede that God does not exist. We also do not concede that God is the author of evil As if he is to blame for evil in the world, God permits it, yes, but it is the fault of fallen humanity that do evil through our fallen nature. So God is not the author of evil, but then we were left with this point. But then why does he permit it? Why does he let it continue to exist? Uh, Realizing that you're asking, why does God continue to let us live? It's the same question, actually. But we are moved in this direction, asking why does God permit evil? Continuing to review this, here last week we were looking at what we call theodicies, which are justifications or explanations of why God permits evil in the world. A theodicy is an explanation of God's purpose for the existence of evil. And there are some theodicies that are given that are biblically unsatisfactory and, quite frankly, unbiblical even of itself. But there are other theodicies or explanations for this question of why God permits evil that are thoroughly biblical, For example, we were looking at the reality that God, for various purposes in the world, seeks to permit suffering, sorrow, and sighing in this fallen world for an ultimate good, for an ultimate purpose that sometimes we do not see and cannot see even in this life. We were emphasizing last week that a person cannot conclude that God is apathetic and does not care because when we look to Jesus, we find the ultimate proof that God cares so much about the suffering of this world that He entered into it in the person of His Son and the excruciating problem of evil itself as the Son dies upon the cross, the ultimate evil for God's ultimate good. So last week... The emphasis was on giving answers to the hard question with the theodicy of God's greater purposes in the midst of evil. But this morning we're going to take a second part of this and actually take a step back from the question and establish some categories for how we should think about this whole thing in the first place using Joseph as an illustration from the Old Testament and ultimately finding a real sense of comfort and purpose in what the Apostle Paul says about God's divine inscrutability is what we're going to see this morning. So, if you've got your Bible open at Genesis 50, we're also going to be looking at Romans 11. Let's first pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word to us this morning. O Lord, You who gives light to the darkness and creates out of nothing, we pray that by Your sovereign Word You would create in our hearts light and that You would give to our darkened minds, illumination, that we might receive truth. Lord, for we are Your people who love to know You and love to know Your Word and will. So by Your Word, Lord, speak to us in Your sovereign power that we might both read, mark, learn, and inwardly receive all that You would say to us today and give us grace to receive it and to believe it with faith in our hearts. Speak now, Lord, for your servants are ready to hear. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to be reading first of all here from Genesis 50, and we'll pick up at verse 15 through verse 21 at the conclusion of Joseph's narrative. Hear the Word of God now, Genesis 50 at verse 15. when they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to, br- to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, Keep something there in Genesis 50 and turn now into the New Testament to Romans 11 at the conclusion of Romans 11 on page 947. Romans 11 at verse 33 through the end of this chapter. Romans 11 at verse 33. The Word of God continues. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So keep your Bible there in Romans 11, at Genesis 50 as well, as we consider this important reality. Why does God permit these various things? Why does God do this? If last week we were looking at answers, uh, this morning we were going to consider some realities as we even ask the question itself. So as you go back to Genesis, in Genesis 50, you have really the living illustration of this ultimate reality that God aims at great goods uh, even by evil means. If you know the story of Joseph, the story of Joseph is that uh, Joseph is uh, one of uh, the sons uh, of the patriarchs of Jacob and uh, he is sold into slavery by his brothers uh, to the Midianite people and the Midianite people deliver him over to Egypt and then in Egypt he is thrown into prison and then comes out of prison to be a counselor to the Pharaoh and ultimately as second in command of at that time the greatest empire in the world Joseph by God's purposes essentially delivers the entirety of the Mediterranean world from starvation in the midst of a drought and in the midst of a famine and then reconciles him back to his brothers so that through Joseph Joseph's story, we find God bringing great good through evil means. God intends, through the story of Joseph, the preservation of his people from famine to come to pass through these various evils. Again, this is what happens in Genesis 37 and 39. Joseph is betrayed by his brother. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He suffers unjust persecution and imprisonment because his brothers sold him into slavery to the Midianite traders who delivered them over to the Egyptians. And Joseph sees all of the things that happened to him throughout his life as really, indeed, evil acts against him But the means of God's sovereign providence. Again, there at verse 20, Genesis 50, verse 20, this incredible saying that Joseph has the wisdom to see this. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You really and truly devised the intent of your heart to be wicked. But God is so sovereign that he is able to use. Wicked purposes for greater goods is what Joseph teaches us. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And you know, Joseph is in the light in one sense about this as he learns this. But think about all the other characters in the story. Think about Joseph's brothers and the Midianite traders and Potiphar's wife and the cupbearer and Pharaoh himself and the Egyptian people. None of those people know about any of these realities. They're just existing in their varied episodes in the midst of Joseph's life in which evil was intended against them. None of these people knew the role of their blameworthy actions would play in God's preservation in this time of danger. They had no clue of the good which depended on various evils or that the various evils would work toward any goods at all. So, when we're asking the question, if God why evil and thinking about God's higher purposes and greater ends, oftentimes you and I want the reason now. Or we want the reason yesterday. We don't want to look into the darkness and not be able to see. We want everything to be clear to us immediately. Oftentimes, what that results in is that because we expect to have the reason immediately, We want to have Joseph's wisdom right away in the midst of everything rather than live in the darkness like his brothers in those various circumstances. We come to the conclusion, if I can't think of the reason, there must not be one. If I can't reach the conclusion, it's because it's not there. Because surely if there was, I would know. By my wisdom, I would see. We must be wise to learn perspective. Of course, this comes at the end of the narrative, and always it seems that we have the benefit of learning God's purposes, sometimes after a long time or at the end of a season. But in the midst, it's hard for us to answer the question, why is God doing this? We don't rest in His providence in the midst. Instead, we say, why is it happening? And I want to know. And one of the best illustrations that I have ever heard for this comes from Alvin Plantinga who's a living Christian theologian he's actually more of a philosopher and he tells he tells this illustration of these bugs I'm wondering if you've ever heard of them called they're called noceums have you ever heard of a noceum a noceum is so small that you can't see them and they bite you and they live in and around, especially the Great Lakes region. So if you've ever been camping in that area, you can't defend against them. Even if you have screens because they're so small that they fly through the screens and bite you. And you can't see them as they're doing it because they're so small. Alvin Planiga gives this illustration. He says this, if I ask you to look inside of a tent, if we go camping and there's a tent, and I ask you to look inside of the tent and say, do you see any St. Bernard dogs in the tent? And you look in the tent and you don't see any St. Bernards, and you say, I don't see them, then we can safely conclude that there are no St. Bernards in the tent because if there were, you would see them. But if I ask you, if you look in the tent and do you see any noceums, those little gnats, can you look in the tent and see the noceums? And you say, No, I don't see them, those noceums. That doesn't mean that they aren't there because even if there were, you wouldn't be able to see them. And when we say, when we say, because I don't understand, therefore there must not be an answer, it's because we assume the answer would be as obvious as a St. Bernard rather than a no see And that's quite the assumption, isn't it, actually? that the infinite mysteries of the universe of an infinitely complex almighty God would certainly be accessible to me, great man that I am. If you think that, you've got to admit that you actually think quite highly of yourself. If you actually believe that to be true. If we assume that if there was an answer, it would be obvious to me. Rather than embracing the inherent limitations of our humanity, which sometimes comes to this conclusion. Are you ready for it? It's going to be deeply profound. Sometimes the conclusion is this. I don't know. If God, why this evil, suffering, sighing, dying? I don't know. I don't know. I do not know is not the same thing as there isn't an answer. But it's giving the answer that I don't know what it truly is, but I do not concede that there is no answer. This is what it looks like to swim into the deep end of the theological pool of what church history refers to as God's divine inscrutability. Divine inscrutability as you go forward back into the New Testament now at the end of Romans 11. Romans 11 is the conclusion of a three-chapter section in which Paul is really uh, speaking about God's mysterious purposes in His sovereignty, His providence, His election as it relates to Israel, as it relates to His people, uh, both sovereign election and sovereign reprobation and the intricacies of these sovereign mysteries that God intends to do from all eternity to give electing love to some and pass over others and it is at the conclusion of these three heavy, weighty chapters that Paul reaches this point of really what is something of a doxological acknowledgement. That's what the end of Romans 11 is. Look again at Romans 11 at verse 33. At the conclusion of these weighty chapters, he just stops there at verse 33 and says, Oh! Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Do you know unsearchable means not searchable? Inscrutable means not scrutable. That's a very simple grammatical lesson, isn't it? But we as humans, we as humans, love to think that the infinite mysteries of God's sovereign purposes are in fact searchable, are in fact scrutable, meaning that we can put God into the dock and say, Lord, answer all of my questions about everything. Submit to my line of questioning. But Paul says, no, there are depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge that God possesses that you, human being, do not have access to. They are indelineable, incomprehensible. Inscrutable could also be translated unfathomable. It's a root word from the Greek word where we actually get the word footprint from. Like, I can't trace God's footprints Through this, I can't see where he's going. I don't know his purposes. The footprints lead over horizon that I can't see past. I can trace them so far but no further. They're inscrutable to me, indelineable, incomprehensible, unfathomable, untraceable. Like a hunter who can follow a scent perhaps, but only so long, or a trail of blood for so long and then it drops off and then it's unfathomable to them. I can't figure it out. Unfathomable. Undiscernible footprints to the horizon. I can't see it any further. Inscrutable, Paul says. God Himself is inscrutable. And what that means, very practically, in terms of inscrutability, is that sometimes the answer is, again, I don't know. So this spring, when we were at the Grand Canyon, I know there's a bottom of the Grand Canyon, but I couldn't see it. It's way down there, but I can't see it. And in the words of the great Puritan Matthew Henry, who said it this way, and it's always stuck in my heart, he said it this way, when we cannot by searching find the bottom... We must sit at the brink and adore the depth. You see, we in our humanity want to creep over the edge and say, show me everything, show me the bottom, tell me how deep, tell me how far, tell me how wide. And Paul says, the depths of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are far too great for you instead of looking for the bottom, sit at the brink and adore the depth because that's what you end up doing at the Grand Canyon. You end up just standing there going, oh my goodness, look at all this. Look at all this. And that's exactly what we must learn to do in Christian obedience with God's purposes in the world because it's a transition from this speculative sense of demanding to know the answer and moving rather to wonder and worship of a God who knows even though we don't know. Rather than saying, I am going to figure this out, this is the attitude that submits to divine inscrutability and says, Lord, I'm not your counselor. I'm not the one to direct your paths. To you and none other are from, through, and to all things. To you be the glory forever. Now, if you want to help a, a picture of this divine inscrutability, think about it this way. Uh, picture, picture a little toddler walking confidently onto the beach with their little plastic bucket and their little plastic shovel. Right, you can picture that in your head. With this particular goal in mind, the toddler is on a mission. I am going to shovel this entire beach into this bucket. Today, with this shovel. And in the limitless imagination of the toddler, this is not only a possible goal, but it is eminently Reasonable to set out to do so. But not you. You know better. I know better, certainly. We know the bucket won't do. We know the little plastic shovel is going to bend under the weight of the sand. And so we say, no, no, no. What we need are excavators and front loaders and dump trucks, and then we'll be able to scoop up all this sand but then we remember that geologists estimate that there are 7.5 sextillion grains of sand on the earth making up all the deserts, shorelines, and sandboxes on the earth. That's 75 and 17 zeros. There aren't enough front loaders and dump trucks and excavators in the world, but the toddler and his bucket and shovel are real, but the idea that they're going to contain all the sand is not real. And our heavy equipment in our superstition is still limited by all of what God can do. So it is with the knowledge of God. Listen to me. The Scriptures are real. God's revelation is real, but the idea that the Scriptures are going to contain the infinite God is not real. That He has chosen to reveal Himself in the Scriptures but that he has only chosen to reveal what must be known for life and godliness. So we could say that the entirety of God's written revelation in the Scriptures are as one grain of sand to the 7.5 sextillion grains of sand in the infinite knowledge of God that he possesses within himself. And what he has chosen to reveal is one because the infinite depths of God's wisdom, knowledge, and purposes cannot be contained or discerned by our finite minds. Again, what that means very practically is that sometimes the answer to the question is, I don't know. I don't know, but that doesn't mean that God does not know. Divine inscrutability acknowledges that I know only so far as God has told me. And the limit of my understanding stops there. But the limit of God's understanding does not stop anywhere. Joseph said, God is able to work good out of evil, which is what the gospel says, that God is able to bring life out of death. And only God can do this. Again, God is so sovereign that He's able to use evil for good. But only God because only God is God, and He is God, whose wisdom is incomprehensible, whose greatness is unfathomable, whose heights are inconceivable, and whose power is incomparable. God Himself. And yet, in our human conditions, we say to ourselves, but I want, I want more than that. I need more than that. Because life is so often hard and painful Still, I don't know why these things happen, and I want to know. And as I gave you this illustration of a toddler going to a beach, uh, it's because uh, some of you know the names Saul and Jesse Huber. They are uh, stateside missionary recruiters for World Outreach that we support. And Saul and Jesse Huber's nephew, Saul and Jesse Huber's nephew, his name is Simeon. Simeon is three and a half years old. He's the same age as our son. Little Simeon has leukemia, and he has had leukemia, and his parents have extinguished every possible means to seek out a cure and help, and his parents have come to a conclusion that they're going to cease treatment for Simeon. And so they gathered up their family, all 28 members of their family, and went to the beach so that they could enjoy time together as a family. And this little boy's parents, whose parents' names are uh, Levi, Levi and Jesse, instead of saying, instead of saying, I don't know why God is doing this to us. They're saying, our child is actually not our child. It's God's child. And in the words of Job, Job said, God has given and God is taking away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Huber family is answering the question, why is this happening? Not with some sort of explanation of the intricate details. They are instead as a Christian family blessing God, saying, Lord, Your ways are higher and we don't understand, but we will trust You in the midst of it, saying, it is well. I don't know, but it is well with my soul. That's why we sing this in the fourth verse of that hymn. O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight." The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And we pray, haste the day because that day is not here yet. We want it to hasten on because we want it to come. Because we're living in the world with the experience of sin, suffering, sighing and dying. And we say, why? 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 And one day we remember that one day faith will be sight. One day there will be no more questions and no more doubts, but that day still isn't here yet. So we must learn to say, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul that the answer to my question is I don't know, but just because I don't doesn't mean God doesn't. But that in the infinite mysteries of a sovereign God, there are hidden in His purposes ends to which we could not possibly discern in this life which one day will be revealed to us and so that when we learn to sing it is well with my soul it is because there is a day is coming when we will realize that it all truly is well because of God's sovereign purposes that even when I don't know God knows and Christian believer that must be enough for you it must be enough for you in order to walk the path of obedience that God is calling you to in the midst of this world. And Christian believer, let me encourage you. God is enough for you. His wisdom and His purposes are enough even if you don't see it in the moment. That's what growing in Christian obedience looks like, to trust Him even when you don't see. So let us believe in and trust and submit to the God who is Himself inscrutable in all of His ways, and yet gracious and kind in all of His deeds. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we look to You because You are the God of eternity. You are the sovereign God who creates all things. And so, Lord, because You are our Creator and our Redeemer and our Lord, we look to You and submit, Father, even in the midst of things that are hard, Yes, it is possible for us to search out answers as a theodicy to justify the purposes. And yet sometimes, Lord, there is no answer to give. And yet that is enough. So help us look to Jesus and to trust you, for you are good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Etchington. EPC.org May God bless and keep you.